pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts would be pleasing in your sight, O God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. All right, we are continuing our series on the book of Ecclesiastes. Uh, when I was in high school, I was the shyest person in school. Even today, I'm not much of a conversationalist. Uh, I want to be, but that's just not who I am. Um, I do have a nonstop sense of humor. Most of you don't know that because I don't talk that much. My wife uh, has to endure it. When I was in high school, I desired to be recognized. But being shy, you don't get much recognition, so I tried to get this recognition and this, therefore, sense of significance, um, this sense of satisfaction in who I was, from uh, sports. I played on a state championship football team in Georgia, which is a big deal. I started at center and at defensive end. I played on the kickoff team, the kickoff return, the punt team, um, or rather the punt return team. The only time I came off the field is when we punted the ball or when we were kicking a field goal. And I drew a lot of significance and satisfaction from uh, being on the Palmetto Raiders football team. That team no longer exists. My high school no longer exists. It's been uh, subsumed into about three or four other high schools. Also, when I was in high school, I could hit a baseball like few others. Uh, I remember playing Noonan High School, and Betty graduated from Noonan High School a year or two before me. And um, Noonan High School is a big high school. It was a quad A school. They were undefeated uh, when we played them, and we were just a little single A school. And um, we were playing at their home field. But we were the home team. The reason we were playing there is we didn't have lights on our baseball field. And so we played them at their um, at their stadium. And we were tied one to one going into the last or in the last inning. There were two outs and I came to the plate. And I can still remember seeing the baseball. As I'm up there getting ready to hit it, the, the pitcher hung a curveball. I could see it spinning. And it's like it just stopped there waiting for me to hit it. And hit it, I did. I, I, I remember seeing the ball um, hit the, the field, maybe bounce once or twice before it hit the fence out in center field. And this was a bigger field than normal. I think like they had a sign out there, 420 or something like that. Um, and uh, it would have been an easy inside-the-park home run. But Mark Bettis was on first base. Mark Bettis' nickname was Boots. 
he didn't run, he clopped along. And um, so, in fact, I caught up with him between second and third base. And I was basically kind of walking behind him into third base, and the coach uh, sent him on to home plate, and uh, the, the relay came in, and he beat the throw. We won the game. They went and they congratulated him, jumped around, and then they came back, picked me up on their shoulders, and carried me off the field. You know, all these years later, I can't remember the record uh, of our baseball team that year. I can remember very few things about that baseball team. Uh, outside of myself and maybe Mark Bettis and maybe one other, uh, everybody else has probably already forgotten it. Come 30 years when we're all dead and gone, uh, every one of us who's playing on that team, that game will be remembered no more. The satisfaction and significance that I so badly wanted ultimately did not deliver for a bit, but it didn't really change my life. didn't really give me much more significance than I would have had anyway. Saying all that, there is hope for satisfaction and significance. In fact, it's here in this passage. I know what you're thinking I know how this passage is going to turn out. It's going to turn out like the previous three sermons. Vanity, vanity, vanity. Well, there's a surprising turn at the end in verses 25 and 26. I'll read it to you just to make sure that you uh, understand that I'm not just toying with you. I'm not just hanging out a carrot that you'll never receive. But verses... um, 25 and 26 at the end of our passage, for apart from him, who can eat or or have enjoyment? For to the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy. But to the sinner, he has given the business of gathering and collecting. And so we're going to be talking here about joy. We're going to be talking about God giving us gifts. So it doesn't just end in vanity. The first 11 verses, however, do end in vanity. Do teach us about vanity. Basically, what it teaches us is what we already know. Money can't buy happiness. In fact, not just money. Pleasure and laughter cannot make you happy. Wine, verse 3, will not... Give you satisfaction will not um, will not ultimately um, bring you happiness. Also, he says in verse three, folly, living an unrestrained life, won't bring you happiness either. And then he goes on in verses four uh, through eleven, and he says that prestige won't give you any lasting satisfaction. He talks about his projects. He talks about his houses. He talks about his vineyards. 
He talks about his gardens. He talks about his parks. He talks about his forests of fruit trees and about all the pools of water that he had constructed to water his forest of fruit trees. He also talks about all the slaves that he owned, men, uh, servants, and and women servants. He talks about the flocks and the herds that he owned. Everything here is described in plurals. He didn't just have one house. He had many. And his largest house, his great palace, in uh, 1 Kings chapter 7, says it took him ten years to build his house. A massive amount of manpower. And all this manpower, all this woman power, all went to serve the appetite of Solomon's pleasure. His search for satisfaction through worldly accruements was not just a dalliance. It wasn't just a little phase in his life. But it was a decades-long obsession. The Bible warns us about this kind of pursuit. 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 and 16, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. Seeking to find our satisfaction and our significance in created things is a rejection of our created purpose. We were created to glorify God and to enjoy Him rather than seek to, to gratify ourselves with all kinds of worldly pleasures as the, the end-all and be-all of our life. So the stuff of the world, however good, will not and cannot satisfy us. But here's the danger. It always holds out to us the promise that it can do so. We're sinners. We are broken from the inside out. And so there's this little, because we're, we're self-seeking, there's this little voice saying, keep seeking. Maybe just a little more will finally satisfy you. Maybe not today, but maybe tomorrow you'll finally be satisfied if you only attain what you so deeply desire. What ends up happening is addictions are formed and we become enslaved by that we so eagerly desire. We were created to be satisfied. We were created to be happy. But God says, be satisfied in Him. Be happy in Him. Solomon says in um, verse 3 that his heart was still guiding him with wisdom. He says in verse 1 
that he was uh, testing himself with pleasure to see if pleasure could bring him satisfaction, it could bring him ultimate enjoyment and fulfillment. Well, this testing became more than just an experiment for Solomon. It became a, a consuming, uh, all-consuming desire. It became a consuming self-centeredness on his part. In fact, as the passage continues to unfold, in verse 8, he said he gathered for himself silver and gold and treasure of kings and provinces. Also, he got singers, both men and women, he says. You know, back then, they didn't have iPods. They didn't have radios. They didn't have record players. The only way you heard music was to listen to someone sing it. And he desired to have music. And so he acquired all these choirs that would sing to him. Maybe they would sing to him in the morning, in the afternoon, and in the evening. Maybe he had many teams of singers to fill his house with song. He also, um, it says at the end of verse 8, he had many concubines. In uh, the book of 1 Kings, it says he had 700 wives, 300 concubines. Self-centeredness consumed him. You know, for most of these women, the whole meaning of their life was to be a sexual plaything for King Solomon. Think how self-consumed you have to be to gather a thousand women for your harem. To take people's lives and have them revolve around your delights and your pleasures. Building him houses. Serving his, his needs. I imagine these servants, these slaves, men slaves, women slaves, they weren't making a living wage uh, serving his pleasures. Power and possessions, prestige, money, sex, they all hold out such promise. That's why they were such temptations back then. That's why they continue to be such temptations in our day and age. You know, they all eventually leave us disillusioned because these things that hold out such promise to us, we never can fully attain them. They never will bring us full um, satisfaction and delight that they promise to bring. And many lives have been destroyed in pursuit of these empty promises. Is there anything in your life, maybe not in this list, maybe something that is good, but you are desiring it, and you just keep saying, a little bit more. A little bit more. 
I must make an A on my homework assignments. My house must function exactly the way I want it to function. My job must pay me what I need it to pay me. A little bit more, a little bit more, a little bit more. Is there anything that is never far from your mind? You're thinking maybe, you've already thought today, maybe today will be the day I obtain it. Or maybe I will put in step or in place these steps that will help me to to obtain it tomorrow. Empty promises. And so he says, he concludes in uh, verses 10 and 11, basically that they are vain, they are empty. It left him um, in despair. He moves on in verses 12 through 17, uh, looking at uh, the pursuit of wisdom and folly. Basically what he's saying is if nothing satisfies, then maybe I should live a meaningless, carefree life. Can't you see how that how that would follow? If you've given yourself and you have more wisdom and more wealth than anybody else on, war, on earth, and you have tried to bring yourself fulfillment and you haven't been able to do so, then maybe it seems logical to simply say, if nothing satisfies, then I'm just going to meet, live a meaningless, carefree life. You probably know people like this. People who have given up hope. They've let themselves go. Some just float along through life rather than living life. Others wallow in self-pity. And so here's Solomon thinking, well, maybe I should consider wisdom, madness, and folly. But there's, he has a little bit of self-responsibility. He's the king after all. These people depend upon me. And so he says, ultimately in verse 13, instead of living for madness and folly, that it's probably better that I live for the pursuit of wisdom. But then in verses 15 and 16 he says, but what does it matter? We're all going to die anyway. Verses 15 and 16 probably bear uh, me reading. Then he said in my heart, What happens to the fool will happen to me also. Why then have I been so very wise? And I said in my heart that this also is vanity. For of the wise as of the fool there is no enduring remembrance, seeing that in the days to come all will have been long forgotten. How the wise dies just like the fool. (laughs) So he says, pursue wisdom, exercise responsibility as a king. We're all going to die anyway. I'm going to die. All my subjects are going to die. We should probably pause for a second and consider that. All of us are going to die from the youngest to the oldest unless the Lord Jesus should come back before we do. All our efforts to find significance and satisfaction, 
They're going to end in the grave. I heard of a man who knew 34 languages. And I think, what effort to learn 34 languages. You know what? The day he died, those languages didn't matter anymore. They died. Uh, His knowledge of those languages died with him. One day I'm going to die. My heart will beat one last time. My lungs will exhale that one last breath. And that will be the end of my days here on this earth. And Solomon, he's recognizing this. He says, I'm I'm pursuing wisdom, but I'm going to die. All the wisdom that I attain is going to die with me. So you know what it made him do? It made him hate his life. Look at verse 17. So I hated life because what is done under the sun was grievous to me for all is vanity and a striving after the wind. Solomon, instead of rising up in his wisdom, he's spiraling down in despair. He's looking for something in this world to satisfy him. But death is like a needle that burst the bubble of all his false hopes. The needle hits his false hopes. And instead of hearing the loud pop of the balloon, what we hear is vanity. You know, many people hate their life. We live here in the most prosperous of nations. We live here with everything we could possibly need at our fingertips. And yet, many people hate their life. They may hate their life because of ongoing physical pain. Maybe because of some unjust suffering that uh, they have had to endure. Maybe there are there is an unrepairable uh, relationship that they have suffered through, maybe a financial hardship or ongoing financial hardships or an accumulation of disappointments. And they hate their life. Probably someone here, maybe even a few here, or many here who, for one reason or another, grumble under your breath because you hate your life. As long as we look and our lives from a this-worldly perspective, there are going to be many things that we hate about our life. The only way is to look above this life. Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 through 3. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. What does this mean? Well, we can make several little quick applications. First of all, if your your life belongs to Christ because it's hidden in Him, it means your life is not about you. It's about Christ. Secondly, Your life is not about the here and now. Because you have been risen with Christ. You've been raised with Christ where He is seated above. And so the things of this earth 
are not ultimately to govern your life. Christ is. And your grave is not your terminal point. You have been raised with Christ, who Himself was raised from the dead and is seated at the right hand of God. And your life is not forgotten and without meaning. Your life here on earth will not be forgotten or without meaning. Because your life is hidden with Christ in God. I recently met someone with early onset Alzheimer's. And he's relatively young. We have many loved ones in our congregation with various stages of dementia. You know, even when they can't remember us, or even when we grow to the point where we can't remember our loved ones or even have difficulty remembering God, God remembers us. And He will not let us go. Our lives are hidden with Christ in God. John Reedy, when I'd go and visit him, um, I would read the scripture with him because I'm a pastor that's what I do you know what benefit can I really give him you know except going and visiting him for a few moments so but I'd go and I'd I'd open the scripture and John couldn't really remember too many things at this stage in his life but boy when I opened scripture he snapped too he knew that God was speaking through his word and that was just God continuing to hang on to John you know, or when we would pray, you know, he'd bow his head and we'd pray. Betty Hogan, you know, and I'd go see her the last several um, years of her life. She never could remember me and I'd have to remind her and then she'd have to introduce me to everybody, even if it was like a week uh, between visits or something like that. But boy, when you'd open the Scriptures and pray, you know, she just delighted in the Lord. God doesn't let go of us. Because even if we can't remember God, we are hidden with Christ in God. In fact, the word for hidden is the Greek word krypto, from which we get the word encryption. Our lives are encrypted with Christ in God. Neither death nor life Neither angels nor demons, neither height nor depth, width or breadth, nothing under all creation is able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now, some of you hit those low points from time to time. You may be in one of those low points right now where thoughts of death, Begin covering your thoughts with its black shade. Look to the Lord Jesus Christ. Look above death. Look above your life. Look above your problems. Look above your difficulties. Look above your regrets. Look to Jesus Christ. Because your life is hidden with Him in God. So we move on into this last section. Uh, Solomon, you know, he, he uh, in verses 18 
through 23, he complains about the toil, the work that he had to endure. So since his, his uh, mind was on the topic of hating life, his mind drifted over to work. In verse 18, I hated all my toil with which I toil under the sun, seeing that I must leave it to the man who will come after me. You know, Solomon didn't have to sit in traffic jams. Solomon didn't have to push for a sale to a reluctant buyer. Solomon didn't have to call in or cover for co-workers who were sick. He didn't have to deal with unreasonable bosses. Yet he hated his work. He found work to be a curse. You know, many of us try and find our identity in our work, in our employment. Can you see the foolishness of this? When Solomon says, who had no boss, who did not have many of the strains of, of uh, our profession that we have, yet he found it to be um, a, a, a curse, a, a, a ceaseless toil. You know, we always, or we typically ask people, what do you, what do, you do for a living when we're trying to get to know them? Because we all assume that what we do for a living is how we identify ourselves. You know, my dad um, retired from Delta Airlines 20 years ago, and he still struggles with being retired because his identity was so enmeshed with his uh, being employed at uh, Delta Airlines. And so Solomon asked some uncomfortable questions. He basically asked, what's going to become of my toil? Being king, he's asking, who will succeed me? Well, we know who succeeded uh, King Solomon. It was Rehoboam. And within a very short period of time, Rehoboam had split the kingdom. Ten of the twelve tribes had split off and formed a whole other nation. Solomon's son, an utter failure as a king before the nation and as a king before God. Solomon asked, what will become of my toil? What will become of our toil? These questions suggested wretched answers in verses 20 through 23. In other words, he was left in despair. But to move toward our conclusion... Um, Solomon takes a surprising turn in verses 24 through 26. In fact, verses 24 through 26 acts as a whole turning point in the book of Ecclesiastes. We might hear in his words in verse uh, 25 uh, an echo of the parable of the rich fool in Luke chapter 12, where the rich fool says... um, or where God says to the rich fool, eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow you die... Well, that's not exactly what Solomon is saying. Solomon is saying something more positive when he says in verse 25, For apart from him, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? Basically, what's happening here is in verses 24 through 26, God shows up. We only heard one reference to God in passing in chapter 1. But here, in verse, in these three verses, we hear God mentioned at least three times. 
So he says in verse 24, There is nothing better for a person that he should eat or drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also I saw is from the hand of God, for apart from him who can eat or drink or have enjoyment. For to the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy. But to the sinner, he has given the business of gathering and collecting, only to give to the one who pleases God. This also is vanity and a striving after the wind. What he's saying here is, You're going to die one day, so you need to go ahead and accept it and enjoy life. Enjoy living life with God. Life, he says, is a gift from God's hand. When we can stop expecting too much from the good things that life life offers, when we can stop seeking wholeheartedly after this satisfaction and this significance and this happiness because we know we're going to die. Then we can become free to live, uh, to pursue these things as God designed them to be enjoyed. Um, We can stop eating food to make up for an unhappiness in our life. We can stop earning a living to get that next vacation. We can stop using other people to make us fulfilled and happy and start loving them as God intended us to love our neighbor. And so, what's happening here in uh, verses 24 through 26 is um, he's saying, stop using these God gifts, God-given gifts exclusively and primarily for yourself. Life is meant to be enjoyed, he's saying in verse 25, not mastered. So, he's saying, trust in God's goodness to you. Trust in God's sovereign rule over your life. Stop trying to be the master of your life. Stop trying to be the only one who can give you happiness and satisfaction by pursuing and seeking after these things in the world. Teens who are here, I lived my teenage life being angry at myself because I wanted to be more gregarious. I wanted to be more talkative. I wanted to be less shy. And I looked at myself wishing that I could be something that I wasn't. And I squandered a lot of the happiness that I could have had as a teenager seeking after my happiness, seeking after my fulfillment, seeking for other people to view me the way I wanted them to view me. And I wasted a lot of my teenage energy. Look to the Lord Jesus Christ. Be willing to give yourself to Him. Be willing to entrust yourself to Him that He and He alone can satisfy you. Trust Him. Trust Him. Trust Him. And let go of your worldly idols. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus.
as we have considered this long passage of Scripture that is difficult to understand at times. I pray that you would help us to, in seeing the Lord Jesus Christ, looking above this world to where He is seated at your right hand, help us to understand this passage in our hearts as we trust in Him. We ask in His name. Amen. Please take your